You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Good afternoon, everyone. On this uh, Friday afternoon, we are doing a special lunch, not happy hour, a lunch edition of the Beltway Briefing this week. Um, Howard Schweitzer is unfortunately under the weather, so you're stuck with uh, with me, Caitlin Martin, as the moderator today, but hopefully it's I've got up- some... Caitlin, it's an upgrade. <laughs> we, we vote unanimously. It's an upgrade. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Finally, well, new we- regime. New regime. <laughs> Regime change, Towner. That's what you're all about. Well, it's been a couple of weeks since we all got together, and uh, there's been a lot happening both in Washington, D.C. and around the country. Um, wanted to start with, you know, the, the the number one topic that our clients are asking about and that we're hearing about on Capitol Hill, which is the issues with supply chain, finding workers, and inflation. In the past week and a half, the Social Security Administration adjusted the cost of living up 5.9%, which is the highest increase in 40 years. Energy prices have risen nearly 25% since 2020. Food prices are up 4.6%. Gas prices nearly highest level in 10 years. People are stressing about holiday shopping and whether or not they're going to be getting their holiday gifts on time, their Thanksgiving turkeys for family. Mark and Patrick, my first question today goes to you. Is inflation a high-class problem, as White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain tweeted last Friday? I see Towner well, applauding. I, I am. Patrick I am. and fantastic. I. I love the new regime, and I would just like to say, Caitlin, <laughs> that was a wonderful intro and first uh, question shot across the bow. So I'm going to mute and let that Patrick we, and Mark deal with this. Yeah, Patrick will... Uh, provide the backstory. My simple answer is that uh, we Democrats have the perfect remedy for the inflation that is creeping into the economy. We're going to go spend $3 trillion. And that that should really take care of anybody's inflation concerns. So, Patrick, can you provide the economic theory behind that for Caitlin and Towner, please? Yeah, exactly. I'm no, uh, I'm no Larry Summers. And on fear of Thanksgiving turkeys, you just need my father-in-law can go hunt a turkey for us. So they're they're always in the backyard. We'll be we don't need any of this soft butterball stuff. But uh, no, Caitlin, you raise listen, you raise a lot of good points. There's a lot of economic indicators that are troubling right now. I think uh, as I'm going through the list of things you brought up, a lot of them, I think are directly related to just how long this pandemic has gone on and the disruption it's caused to a whole bunch of different parts of the economy. But, you know, as all of us, as from what we're hearing from our clients and just what we're experiencing in our day-to-day lives, the supply chain issue is remarkable how frequently that pops up in just your daily life as a consumer. Um, in what all of our clients are reporting is, you know, really problematic in trying to get the goods and services they need to be able to to sell to their customers. And it's a real problem. I think that the White House Chief of Staff saying inflation is a high-class problem. Some of the tweeting and the retweeting, Caitlin, we talked about this. I mean, you know, I just, I think Twitter is not a good medium to to litigate a lot of this stuff. But um, 
no disrespect to, to Mr. Klein, but I, I, do, I do think that the totality of all of these economic indicators uh, is something that's troubling to a lot of our clients and a lot of people out in the country. And I think as the pandemic continues to go on, it's worrisome as we take the turn into next year. Having said that, you know, I do think that as soon as the pandemic feels a little more stable, hopefully with the announcement this week on mixing and maxing, matching boosters, on some of the things related to just giving people some security that, okay, there is a next step we can take here. The numbers are going down in a lot of states. I saw Illinois, we had our best day since early August uh, yesterday. So I, I, I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful that things are going to get better as we take a turn into next year. Well, Mark, you bring up an you bring up an interesting point um, about infrastructure and the reconciliation bills, the Build Back Better bill. We got some big news this week. It looks like the White House is finally really engaging. Um, have had several meetings with moderate and progressive groups at the White House over the past week and a half, and we're learning about a lot of slimming and, and changes to the package this week. So. Um, well, maybe let's kick it over to Towner. Towner, why don't you tell us what's in, what's what we know, what's in, what's out, some of the big provisions that have had to be cut, and kind of where you see Speaker Pelosi today said she wants to see both bills receive a vote on the floor by next week. They set this arbitrary end of October deadline. Is it going to happen? What's in it? What's out? Give us a give us an update, Professor French. Yeah, well, first of all, it's all out. Um, you know, $3.5 trillion build back better has become $1.5 trillion uh, as of uh, the town hall that uh, President Biden just recently hosted. So everything must go. Uh, they got rid of the free uh, community college tuition. Uh, they're getting in the process of getting rid of dental vision and and uh, hearing for Medicare, although they may be able to do a voucher program. I know I know several folks are working hard on that. Um, that would be significantly less expensive. Uh, they're they're throwing overboard mo- a good chunk of the housing funding. Uh, you name it, it's it's gone. Uh, and so uh, this is going to be a much more targeted product uh, at the end of the day. And, and quite frankly, from a political standpoint, you got to start worrying about the progressives saying, whoa, once they get a look at this thing, this is not what we signed up for. This was not transformative build back better at the end of the day. Uh, but that said, when it comes to the actual process of this, I understand that Speaker Pelosi wants a vote next week, and that's, that's all well and good. Um, but there are still hurdles uh, to be overcome. Uh, certainly, they don't have legislative language yet, and they're working diligently. That's a big one. Yeah, as, as pieces get uh, put together, they're working on crafting it. Um, but, you know, from a technical component, can Pelosi vote next week? Yes. We have an existing large package that's sitting waiting for the, the House Rules Committee to take it up and send it immediately to the House floor. Uh, they can amend it in any way they so see fit. And so they can they can gut that $3.5 trillion bill and, and insert whatever's left uh, from the negotiations with Manchin and Cinema um, and move that through the process fairly expeditiously. However, they still have to be ready to go with actual bill text. And uh, and I think by the end of next week, uh, I take all my news now from Joe Manchin, who's saying no chance. Yeah, build. I say build back better has become scale back quickly. That's the that, as fast as humanly well, possible. But a couple of observations, if I may, for those of you concerned about inflation, and we all should be, 
one and a half trillion is less inflationary than three and a half trillion. So I know we're yucking it up. Uncle Joe had to scale back his new deal, but it does bring with it some economic advantages, inflation being one of them. Also for our clients' purposes, the tax is going to be much more modest, much less extreme. And that is something that I know is disappointing to a lot of progressives in the party. But uh, it's not disappointing to most of our clients, uh, I can assure you. And and I will tell you, I talked uh, in the last 48 hours, I, I talked to two senators and, and two Congress members, uh, Congress members, moderates, senators, progressives, and all four said the same thing. We're doing this. They said, we're, we're done pretending that we aren't going to get it done. We're done pretending that Bernie and Joe Manson are never going to be in the same building again. Everybody said that a corner had been turned and that a, a commitment had been made to get this done. The, the Democrat, this is very Democratic, capital D, Democratic Party-like. We have agreed to agree, but we haven't agreed on what we're agreeing. So that, that counts as progress in this reconciliation odyssey. And I'm just going to say again, as Towner, you and I have discussed in, in recent podcasts, it, it's a... It's a motion picture, not a snapshot. If you take the snapshot on any given day, it looks like just an awful mess. But if and when the bipartisan infrastructure bill and a reconciliation package emerge from this process, I think the, the Biden administration and the Democratic Party are going to get judged on what actually happened, not on how this got made. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I just the number of process stories that have been written over the last month or two about who has the power within the Democratic Party. I don't even know how we could be debating that at all. It is clear who has the power. President Biden last night did a town hall where he directly answered multiple questions pointing to Manchin wants to scale back this, Cinema wants to scale back this, Manchin wants to. So I, I, I hesitate to say this in case any uh, progressive members of the caucus happen to be listening to the Beltway briefing today, and I don't want to upset them and get them all flustered, but they're going to get rolled. And what do they get? They get a big package because we happen to have very slim Democratic majorities. That's That's what you get. But in terms of who shapes the package, who makes the decisions on what's in and what's out, all I have to all we have to do is point to what Mark just brought up. Corporate race and individual rates. That is like uniformly supported uh, in terms of making changes, but one single moderate senator doesn't want to do it, so we're not gonna do it. And so that the, what we what everyone who what everyone who looks at this with clear eyes knew to be true from the beginning is still true today. And that is that we have 50 Democratic senators and the ones who are able to exert the most influence from this process are the two that are from red states and are choosing to do it. And that's Manchin yeah. and Cinema. Well, and Towner, you and uh, Caitlin on your side of the aisle, 
will remember the drama of uh, the summer of 2017 when not two, but three senators decided to save the Affordable Care Act after a decade almost of rhetoric and, and ranting about the Affordable Care Act. The Republicans, of course, controlled the House, the Senate, and the uh, White House, just uh, as we have now with Democrats. The House sent over some, like the 111th repeal of the Affordable Care Act. And John McCain, uh, Susan Collins, Barbara Mikulski, with McCain's dramatic thumbs down, that it, it isn't unprecedented that a right. couple of senators control what everybody else in the party wants to do. But I just want to say something, and it'll, uh, it will go unattributed uh, because he, I'll give you that, he, he told it to me. But in these discussions with Manchin and Cinema, don't forget that there is a, another dimension, which is the voting rights legislation. And don't be surprised, Manchin and Cinema getting a lot, if not all, of what they want in reconciliation doesn't come back in a very positive way, positive for the, those pushing voting rights reform, um, when, when we get to voting rights. They've been the two who have said they're not monkeying with the filibuster even for voting rights. Stay tuned. Stay tuned is my message on that. That's that's breaking news uh, on the Beltway Briefing podcast. Uh, that uh, you know this that, and and Mark, you're exactly right that this could tie back to hey, we've we've done a lot for you both now in Mansion and Cinema. So what are you going to do for us? Uh, but but you know the filibuster. My, my prediction is that uh, on voting rights. The Democrats are going to make the Republicans actually filibuster. And after two weeks of giving them a chance to explain to the country on the floor of the Senate why allowing people to vote is a bad idea, then I think you're going to see 50, uh, 50 votes, 51 votes for voting rights. I'm, I'm not holding my breath because it is a very, very narrow path. And Mark, is this on the, do you think this is on the mansion compromise too? Is this on the bill he's been working on? Yeah, because that, I mean, that tells you too, if you have one of the two members actually working in earnest to try and develop something that makes sense and is, is acceptable to both sides, I can, I can totally see that. But, but yeah, Caitlin, back to, to the broader point and that Towner and I have been on calls all week and we've been talking about this with our clients. I mean, it's really interesting, the dynamic, what's going on. I mean, Biden is, President Biden's very smart. He's having groups over to the White House, making everyone feel involved in the process as he is slowly cutting and cutting and cutting. And he has, it's, he, it shows the kind of political charisma he has. He has these groups of progressives over to the White House. They leave feeling great. They're like, we're really excited. We heard what we want to hear. And then slowly but surely, you're hearing things are getting stripped out because there's just a political reality. They're not going to get this done. Uh, unless they dramatically, dramatically scale it back. And and the progressive Jews going to have to live with it. Well, and it's a tried and true tactic, too. I mean, Republicans do it all the time as well. How many times did, you know, Boehner or George W. Bush or others, you know, hug the the uh, polar wing of their party, uh, in that case, the far right? Uh, and Freedom then, Caucus. 
And then once you once you have them in your in your grasp with that big bear hug, you start walking them back towards the middle. And that's exactly what Biden did at the end of September. He went up to Capitol Hill. He blew up the negotiations on the bipartisan bill. He backed the progressives. He said, we're going to do this together. And he got him in that big bear hug. And now he starts walking slowly back towards the middle with them. And they don't realize they're moving in that. Well, and, Tanner, no, and, and with no, absolutely no disrespect to, to the people's house where I know you, you came up in and, and spent your, your many years there. It is so much easier to do this with, with members of the house. I, I was pointed out to me one time, uh, you, the, the difference between a president and a member of the house of representatives is never more evident then at a White House event, when the president comes out and members of the House pull their cell phones out and start taking pictures <laughs> of them as if they're kids at a concert. It's just, yeah. you know, if you're a rank and file member of the House, uh, you, you know, and the president starts giving you attention, showing you time, that's a big deal. And they yeah. all walk out feeling good. And, you mm-hmm. know, it, it's just the way it is. It's they, They've had to uh, navigate the supply chain issues to order more boxes of M&Ms with Air Force One logos <laughs> on them to right. hand out to all the House members, yeah. you know? It's, well, and I think I think I think Mark and, and and Patrick are absolutely right. But what I want to say is the system's working. This is this is the whole point. Biden was not elected on a progressive platform with huge margins. He was elected because he was not Donald Trump. We have a 50-50 Senate. It's the constituents that elect, you know, it was West Virginians that elect Joe Manchin. Why would he be listening to the media and the chattering class and the lobbying class of Washington, D.C., and not reflecting his constituents and his constituency. And it, you know, this is this is how law gets made. And I think there's a lot of folks that are frustrated on the left and, you know, take a step back, go back to the basics, how our democracy works. They do not have the margins to enact big, sweeping, progressive reforms. The system I will, works. I, I totally agree, Kay. And I will add as a political point, I'm just kind of curious to see how this plays out. There is a difference between Manchin and Cinema, both on what they're advocating for and I think as we look at their political futures. Manchin is a former governor. He is a tour de force in the state of West Virginia, that, that there's no one really like him. And he has a level of trust, I think, with his constituents and is advocating for things very specific to West Virginia. You know, and I point to the climate change provisions. It is possible, I think, and we'll have to wait and see how this goes, that Cinema is overplaying her hand a little bit. Arizona is not West Virginia. There's been dramatic population change there. She's leaning in on things that are really core to the Democratic base, things like the tax code. And I actually do think she needs to be careful about potentially getting a primary challenge. I think I, I'm not making it. She's definitely getting a primary challenge. But yeah, I I, I think she might be overplaying her hand. Oh, I think she is. She's going to get a primary challenge from the left. Yeah. She is overplaying her hand. Yeah. I I like her. I've spent time with her. I like her, but she hasn't done this before at this level. I think she's learning on the job to a degree. But I'm just going to say again, let's, let's look back after it's over and see where she ended up. Because I think uh, a lot of this is her idea of how to negotiate. And she may end up elsewhere than, than where she began. She'll have to or there will be no, no bill. Yeah. The other thing I'll say, though, is she's not up this election cycle. 
And, and so, you know, she's not facing that primary challenger for another three years, which in politics is an eternity. It is an eternity. I mean, think about where we were three years ago. Heroes were villains and villains were heroes. And, and that's how politics works. So if you're going to do something like this, as, as cinema does, to raise her profile nationally amongst everyone, both parties. I mean, she's she's a big name now. And she was not a big name you know, six, seven months ago. Um, this is the time to do it when you're politically insulated. This is why folks can take chances in the Senate because they have a heck of a lot of time to repair their image uh, before uh, before the next election comes around. It's a great point. Really good point. Yeah. Well, and much, we, we brought up Senator Manchin and much ink has been spilled over the past week and, and longer than that. Um, but there was a story that leaked about um, Senator Manchin considering leaving the Democratic Party. He came out very forcefully, used some strong language uh, that started with a B and ended with an it, but saying that that is not indeed true. But it's just interesting timing. There's some inside the beltway chatter about who could have leaked that and whether it was a strategic leak and about the timing of that. But what do you think, Mark, on that topic of whether or not? I, I take him at his word. He's he loves where he is. Why, oh, yeah. why, would he, why would he go from first to worst? He would be 50th in the uh, Republican caucus, 51st in the Republican caucus. Why Why would he go from first to, to that? And I also, he, he ain't going nowhere. But if he ever were to cross the aisle, McConnell would try to give him back. He, he's, he just doesn't fit McConnell's vision for that caucus. So I don't think that I don't think that is an issue. And and I promise this will be the last time I say it. Although I'll probably break my promise. Um, let's see how it how it works out. Let's see what kind of a Democrat mansion proved to be when it's over and we look back. Because I again I talked to two people yesterday, two senators. And and progressive senators and they they made me feel much better about the prospects of this thing getting done and getting done right and getting done on time. Oh, I I agree with all that. And, and I, you know, all of us talked to a lot of people. I don't talk to that many people on a day to day basis who don't think a, a big package is going to pass. I think sometimes on the Republican side, I'll talk to consultants or clients who I think it's more hopeful than anything else. Like maybe they'll blow this. God, that would be great. But most people who I feel like kind of look at it pretty clear eyed, they're like, they're going to get something. They're going to get something done. I mean, they just yeah. they just will. The challenge is anything that actually requires Republicans, anything that cannot be reconciled, anything that can't go through reconciliation is is a challenge because getting the debt ceiling lifted, we talked about this a week or two ago, having Schumer come out with remarks I, I would not have advised him to make. I, I don't know where we're going to be in the beginning of December because I, I think... Um, I think McConnell may actually be done with trying to let anything happen. So I feel very good as a good Democrat about where we are with infrastructure, where we are with um, the reconciliation with human infrastructure, build back better. I had given up on voting rights until I was told it's too soon to give up on voting rights. But 
But wow, the, December, <laughs> December could be immovable object, irresistible force collide. I think the question is, how do Democrats deal with the fallout of having to cut this by more than half to get it through? How do they deal with next November not having the transformative that had been promised? How do they motivate progressives to come out to the polls in three weeks in Virginia and next November? And I, I think, you know, I, I don't think they had any other option. They had to get something because otherwise uh, Biden is, is really got some headwinds for the rest of this two year congressional cycle. But, you know, does it at the end of the day create sort of a blase sort of feeling within within uh, many of the establishment and progressive democratic circles that uh, that carries through 2022? And I think that's the one question to, to ask. Yeah, motivating voters when you're in the majority and have the White House is really hard, right? That's why we typically see midterm losses uh, by the party in power. And I, I agree, Tanner. I mean, I think we're looking to the race next week. I mean, I, uh, you know, I think Republicans have a, a decent shot at, uh, at, at winning the governor's race. And I think as we look to the midterms uh, next year, you know, we don't, but to, to point to something Mark says, and I actually agree, uh, we don't know what it's going to look like. I mean, picture a world. What if, what if Roe versus Wade gets overturned? You know, what if, uh, what if yeah. the pandemic is really stabilized by next summer and we're getting really good economic report? It's just, it's really hard to know kind of what the environment is going to be like. And that's where I actually kind of disagree with the, all the prognostication on the Virginia race. I actually kind of don't know if passing this has any impact whatsoever on the Virginia gubernatorial race. I don't think it really does. I think the fa- I think the and and we'll hear next week as we get close to the election. I just think the problem right now is Biden's numbers are underwater. Yunkin seems to be a perfectly like reason kind of normal reasonable guy, and it's it's just not a good environment. I don't think it's like that much more complicated than that. And turning out people is hard, and you need them to be motivated by something. What's motivating them right now? You know what is what is the Trump's not in power anymore. Um, I just I don't know what gets those people fired up right now. Yeah. And one other question that I'd like to pose in, in all of our collective years of political experience in this realm, did we ever think that passing a one and a half trillion dollar bill would be sort of a blah scenario? Well, we're talking add about that the, to what yeah. we've already passed this year. Yeah. And yeah. we're talking one and a half trillion is the size of the annual federal discretionary budget. We're yeah, Mark, you remember, Mark, during the ACA, I mean, I just remember so many right. meetings on the Hill. This thing cannot go over $1 trillion. It was like right. it was an absolute right. optics. We, there is zero chance we can get that. You know, it can be $999 billion, but it can't be a trillion. And now, I mean, that just, that's out the window now. Well, yeah. Although, Towner, when you look back uh, at 2010, not everything, we, we've changed a lot. Uh, for the worse in the partisan uh, environment since 2010. But Obama and the Democrats, Obama, of course, wasn't on the ticket, but we got uh, shellacked, I think was Obama's word. We got shellacked in the House and the Senate. But Democrats weren't punished for not passing a big enough Affordable Care Act 
because we went through the same paring down to get it done then. Democrats were punished for passing it at all. Right. And, by Republicans and, and by yeah, a lot by of America. And the Tea Party and all of that lunacy. But I, again, let's see what it looks like. I don't think Democrats are going to get punished for passing this. Whether Democrats are inspired to turn out in necessary numbers, we'll have to see what else happens. But but the dynamic is, is to me, just, just different than 2010. I will say the one thing that's concerning is, I mean, there, I thought we were giving people something, even though healthcare is complicated, I thought people would at least understand the idea of you're going to have access to healthcare and you didn't. I don't know how the heck we're going to explain human infrastructure, no matter what we call it. I mean, people are going to get the roads and bridges, but the totality of the reconciliation package, like, I just don't know how we're going to sell it, uh, particularly well, with delayed benefits. And so I, I just think it's going to be, it's going to be a political messaging challenge to get people to understand how it makes their lives better next year. Now on the ACA, the one thing I'll say is the shellacking happened in the short term. It felt horrible. And there was a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking about what we could have done differently, but then look at the next 10 years, right? But election after election, the ACA sort of started to change and it ended up becoming a weapon for Democrats in the later part of the last decade. And now it's a entitlement that, people can't live without. And so it's it's just like an interest. Sometimes you have to take the short-term hit if you believe the policy in the long run is going to last. And I think that's the bet Democrats are making yes. that they don't care that they, they want to hold the majority, but they're not, they're not going to uh, be overly concerned with what happens in November. Just do the best thing you can, get the best package you can and go from there. Well, and Democrats have done a terrible job messaging this bill. Most of it, you can see it in the polling numbers, the way Americans view this. They they view the top line numbers, oh, the $3.5 trillion bill versus the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And it's just uh, pretty, pretty terrible messaging. I, I, I It was stark and, and really striking to me when Speaker Pelosi chastised the media last week for not doing enough to educate the American public and sell this bill for her and for the caucus. But um, yeah. I think well, there's a lot of there's a uh, let's wait and see when Americans learn what's actually in it. Whether you need not- the Republicans who are good at naming stuff. It's all everyone calls it the three point five trillion dollar bill because Republicans started calling that. They are they are so good. I just want to get your marketing folks to come over to our team because they are like the best at naming but, this. But stuff. I'm going to tell you, I say something that even Patrick may disagree with. I know what Caitlin and Towner think of this. And I totally agree, Caitlin. The messaging has been abysmal. We've we've given up ground that that we never should have in in the messaging war. But I, I thought the president did a damn good job with his town hall last oh night. Oh my god! I agree. I thought he did and fine. I, and I would send him out there. This is going to live or die. I agree. Send him out there. Every time he goes out there, it's great for the Republican Party. Send him out there. It's great for the party that believes the election was stolen and he's not the legitimate president. The rest of the country, I think, uh, thought he did a good job last night. So fine. I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. He he did do decently, but the question becomes: the bar is why so has this staff been hiding him 
for 10 months. And not taking questions. You guys, but Mark, Mark, you're the one who really lived this. Isn't this what Democrats did with Reagan all the time? He's napping. He's not there. He's He's fumbling through answers. I mean, this is, it's a terrible mistake to think that like, that's how ordinary people view it. Because they didn't. They loved Ronald Reagan. I'm not saying they feel the same way about Joe Biden they do about Ronald Reagan. But I don't think the average American is watching that and like eye rolling at everything he says. No. Oh, I think you are a little, I think Mark and Patrick, you're a little out of touch, but that, well, let's, <laughs> no, let's hey, leave. We, we agree that people who believe that January 6th was a heroic and patriotic event, we agree that people who believe that the election was stolen despite all of us right here and most of the country knowing it wasn't, Sure, those people are are don't think Joe Biden did a good job last night. That that is okay. not fair, Mark. That is not that is not true and not fair. But I'm going to pivot us because we said we would keep it we would keep it quick on this uh, lunch edition of the Beltway Briefing. Um, we've we've mentioned a couple times today that in 11 days we've got a very big um, governor gubernatorial race in Virginia between Terry McAuliffe and um, Glenn Youngkin and. We are going to have our partner, Jerry Kilgore, former Virginia State AG um, and a leader in our state attorneys general group, speak with us and join us next Friday on the mic to kind of break down that race, break down what he's seeing. Um, It's got some obviously national implications as a big off-season race, and there's going to be a lot of tea leaf reading around it. So we're excited to have him join us next Friday. So We'll hope everyone will tune in and, and we'll be a couple of days from Virginians casting the ballot. But it's going to be a lot better than our chatter. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and to, to get folks to tune in next week to Jerry, former state attorney general, also firsthand experience running for governor, how the national issues impact your race. Uh, he, he'll, he'll tell it to us firsthand, but he's lived it and, uh, and is going to have some awesome observations for us next week. Well, I'm going session. back to the beginning. I nominate the moderator for Jerry's appearance next week. You're here. You're here. Well, thanks, everyone. We, we look forward to reconnecting next week and have a great weekend, all. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.